Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Today's topic is circular supply chains with my friend, Deborah Dull. How's it going there, Deborah? Oh, superb, Joe. How are you? Good, good. I've had a good time talking to Deborah about this topic. It is an interesting one. And guys, you better pay attention because it is coming. If you haven't heard the term circular supply chain, you're not alone. I had not heard it until I heard it from Deborah probably a few months ago. Like, okay, I think I know what it's sound where it's leading, but I don't know the details. So we're gonna learn that today. But first, Deborah, please introduce yourself and your company. Sure. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. I love supply chain. That's the thing you should know most about me. I, I fell into okay. supply chain as an undergrad. Thank you. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> my first day of my supply chain class, we had to write a note card down of what do you want to learn in this class? And uh, the supply chain and operations management class, and I wrote down what is operations management? (laughs) I had no idea. And I have to say, I think even after my degree, I wasn't entirely sure what I would be doing all day long if I went into supply chain. So understandable that it seems dry and boring, but I promise you it's not. I find inventory to be the world's most fascinating topic. And I got another degree in supply chain as I was working at the Microsoft supply chain. I've used supply chain to explore the world and to see, can we actually make the world a better place while also uh, supporting our businesses. And so I spent a couple years at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation exploring supply chain with international development in resource-constrained environments and frontier markets, quite interesting. And now I'm looking actually uh, in my day job at the industrial world at GE Digital. Uh, The majority of our customers are external manufacturing and industrial process customers. Super cool, because when you go over, flip on a light switch or turn on the faucet, you expect something to happen. You fire up the internet, you think something should work, and all of those have a supply chain behind them. By night, I lead a nonprofit called the Circular Supply Chain Network. We really started taking off about six months ago, and it's been a lot of fun to be able to advocate for this topic and to explore it together with supply chain professionals and non-supply chain professionals. So anyhow, super excited. It's the the thing I like to do inside and outside of work. Cool. So before we get into circular supply chains, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up and where'd you go to school? And give us some career highlights after you got out of school. You've got an interesting life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I grew up in a fairly rural community. We're the biggest small town in central Washington. So if you're familiar with The biggest with small town. <laughs> How many are. people is that? Uh, 30, 30,000 or so. Oh, that's not too bad. To give it in context, in high school, Macy's, which at the time was Bon Marche, put in an escalator and we used to go ride it for fun. (laughs) So just to put it, there was a Sherry's in the same parking lot. So we made it a really fun experience to go ride the escalator up and down and then go get a Shirley Temple at uh, (laughs) Sherry's and sit there for four and a half hours talking with our friends. So I grew up there, really tremendous upbringing, actually, given that both my parents grew up on farms, and I had a very, very strong work ethic put into my upbringing. Lots of early mornings picking fruit in the summertime. I started working for my parents at age five. I had a flooring business, laying hardwood floors. So I leave the shop with my dad, and I think I made 35 cents an hour when I first started with them under the table. No one get them in trouble. I don't think they filed. So very, very interesting. And I think sets the the basis for a lot of the way I see the world now. 
I stuck around in Washington State for a couple more years and went to school in Bellingham, Washington at a tremendous school called Western Washington University and then launched out into the world. And since then, I've really not spent more than a couple of months in the States at a given time. Really enjoy going out and adventuring. This last year, of course, has been a little bit stunted given uh, all of our safety measures. Where's some of the places you lived? Oh, gosh. Formerly have lived in London and in Ethiopia. I have spent considerable time through South America. I spent several months after undergrad working my way through the continent by bus. It was the cheapest. So even went down to Patagonia on a 36-hour bus ride. That's one to write home about. Nice. I really like visiting Slovenia. It's like miniature Europe. They have it all. They've got the Alps. They've got caves. They've got wine. They've got seaside. Very, very sweet uh, capital city. So I spent quite a bit of time there. A really fun time kind of adventuring through the world and meeting people along the way. So when you got out of school, where'd you go to work? Yeah, good question. So as I got out of school, I was a scholarship student and discovered I could graduate early, thus saving a year of living expenses. (laughs) So I did that, but that backfired because I realized at 21 years old, I was not anywhere near ready to contribute to the workforce. So a friend and I went to South America. I first spent uh, some time in Brussels living and working my way, room and board at bed and breakfast and worked at Headhunter Company, which I did not like at all. Then uh, seven months in South America, working my way through it. Then a summer in D.C., understanding politics. I met Hillary Clinton, worked under his Bill Clinton's campaign advisor, quite cool. And at 21, was not a whole enough soul yet to handle the D.C. lifestyle. <laughs> I think actually you need less of a soul to be in DC. Yeah, that was the <laughs> You're probably too mature by that point. Yeah. You're probably too mature by that point. So I, I had spent the summer also working in a manufacturing association, which was quite cool and kept me one foot in supply chain. And so I started my career at Microsoft. And as they do with many of their college hires, pushed me around to different roles over 12 to 18 months. And so I got a chance to really try on a lot of different amounts of the supply chain opened many of their retail stores, launched Surface One, and eventually moved to London with them in their digital supply chain, which was quite cool. Very nice. Very nice. So then you went where after Microsoft? Yeah. You know, it's always funny. I'd had this 10-year goal of getting out of the country. Uh, At 18, my dad told me, you'd better set a buy 30 goal. And I rolled my eyes and I was like, I don't want to talk about investment, dad. And he said, no, I'm not talking about money. I'm saying like life. You're going to blink, wake up and be 30 one day and say, what the hell have I done with my life? And he wasn't wrong about that point. And so at that point, at 18, I set a goal that by 30, I wanted to move out of the country. At 27, I moved to London. And at 29, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation called and asked if I'd be interested in trying to learn a new industry and making the leap into the land of international development. So although my, my dream city, there I was, but you can't say no to such a cool, unique, wonderful opportunity And so that really led into this fascinating space of international development, public health. I spent quite a bit of my time split between Ethiopia and Nigeria, working together with uh, ministries of health and international development partners to figure out why is supply chain so hard. We actually did a learning session for Bill and Melinda 
on that. Why is supply chain so hard? If you can imagine, how do you boil down an entire uh, industry into a 90-minute session? Right. When we were prepping, you said you got to actually meet Bill and Melinda Gates, which I think is fantastic. Bill's always been one of my, I shouldn't call him that, but Bill Gates is one of my heroes. I actually can't know him. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you can call him Bill. It's okay. You can shorten it for Bill G. That's sometimes what he gets called. I buy his stuff a lot, so he yeah. feel like he should call you Bill. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was very interesting. It's both of them have very, very fascinating ways of thinking and unpacking problems. And so to be able to unpack a problem live together is really on a short list of cool moments in life that you'll have a chance to do. Yeah. So how did you end up at General Electric? Yeah, good question. So after my time at the Gates Foundation and, you know, the land there is you make these long-term investments into a market and see if it works. So I put in several investments encouraging supply chain associations to take Africa seriously, putting in international standard university programs for supply chain so that talent can be developed within the region. Several investments like this. And so I thought, gosh, I could either sit here for the next five years and wait, or I could go off and solve another set of problems. And I don't really do run business. And so I decided to take a different turn. I took a couple months off to try to figure out what could I possibly do that could anywhere feel close to as meaningful as the work I'd been doing. Right. That's a big impact job. So it yeah. was a big impact job. You can point you can point to the the children and families that are alive <laughs> that uh, absolutely few few of us have that impact. Right. So needless to say, it was a tall order. I reached out to my network, talked to a lot of different folks during that time. This is about gosh three three four years ago. I found the circular economy as I was looking around at what could I possibly spend my time doing and uh, started to understand the concept. And I know it says the word economy, but it's not as boring as it sounds. It basically boils down to we have more chances to make better use of the materials we're using today. If we do that, we'll all make more money. Jobs will become easier to create. Our supply chains will be more robust. So it's kind of a cool concept. But I noticed that there's almost no supply chain folks in the conversations. There's a lot of sustainability people, engine, not engineers, designers, material scientists doing super cool work. But when we think about how to operationalize this, there was almost no one. I did a Google search for circular economy and supply chain, and there were three, not three pages, like three total (laughs) results. So that really started this infatuation I've had in this space of, of, is it chicken or egg? Does the supply chain enable a circular economy to start or does the circular economy require the supply chain vice versa? Which is very much a similar question actually as at the Gates Foundation. And I really struggled with how do I make good investments? Because is it that I need to do something in a supply chain industry, which unlocks the ability for consumer spending, which unlocks uh, economic growth? And again, there's just not been a ton of research done between the relationship of economy and supply chain. So that leads us to the big question, what is a circular supply chain? Yes, good question. So if we think about supply chains, and if you are listening and you're not a supply chain professional, again, don't don't hang up. Don't turn it off. <laughs> Look around you right now. By the now. way, you should never, ever turn this show off. <laughs> Clearly not. Don't even pause it right now. If you're in the car, stay. Just listen. Look around you right now and pick any item that you see. I'm going to pick my tube of chapstick because it's sitting right here. Every component in that, so for me, the tube, the chapstick itself, and the label will make it easy. All of that had to come from someplace. Now, I'm going to break it to you, everybody. There's not a miniature factory of elves in the back of Target. (laughs) There's not. 
This is actually coming from someplace pretty far away. And all of the things that go into the thing came from pretty far away. And often there are a thousand miles between each of the factories that go along the way. So our supply chains are very long today. We'll talk about why they need to get shorter. But it boils down to really three elements. So supply with a caveat that supply chains are sometimes called supply networks. We understand it's not like a chain. But if you think about my one single tube of chapstick, it was a chain. It followed a single little tiny little path. Cool. It is essentially a series of inputs, outputs, and processes. This is also kind of how our day works. Like if I think about making coffee this morning, I had inputs, I had outputs, and I had a process of how to make the coffee. So circular supply chain then, let's flip our normal way of thinking about inputs and outputs. And today it works that we take something out of the planet, typically, that's our input. And when we're done with it, it's not used anymore. It may make it to landfill. It might make it into the ocean. It might just kind of hang out in a junkyard somewhere. But we're not getting any more value from it. So that's today's what we'll call a linear supply chain. So inputs, imagine that there is a way to have everything coming in not come from the planet and instead come from items already detached from the planet. We have 92.5 billion tons a year that we essentially don't use any anymore. So that's a lot that we could put back into our supply chains. Or it comes from a regenerative source. And what we might think about is the energy transition from coal to wind. So the energy fueling a big uh, factory, for example, and maybe that now comes from solar or wind, which counts as regenerative, or a material that's quickly regenerating. Excellent. So, so we're just looking, rather than just have that linear supply chain, we're talking about if we could take the output and say that output becomes the input for another supply chain. That's so exactly that, right. that's the circular part of it. That's exactly and, right. And guys, this is, of course, we're talking about sustainability. And I know one of the things that's uh, near and dear to me is and I think most of us, we have this great, this great economy that we live in and we are wealthier beyond our ancestors' wildest dreams of how successful we can be. But we all are conscious of that there's an environmental impact. And I think one of the things that drives all of us crazy is when you get, you buy something and at some point you're throwing it out, you're like, why am I throwing, I'm throwing this out because it's not fashionable anymore. Or, I bought it and it doesn't match my current blank, whatever it is. It's painful. I mean, we do it, but we still just cringe and you go, God, is this the right way to do it? Just doesn't feel right. And I think there's another aspect to it. In a lot of ways, you hear some people saying, hey, capitalism is the wrong way to go. It's not good for people. It's not good for the planet. We have to take those arguments away. We have to be able to say, we are going to have sustainable businesses that are profitable first and foremost. Well, you can t- all three are just important profitable, be good for the planet, and be good for people. We're all going to have to get there. And brands are already selling that. So when the brands are selling that, when consumers are demanding it, and brands are saying, well, we got to figure this out. We we said we're going to be sustainable. Right. It's going to come to supply chain and logistics guys to figure it out. So that move to that linear, from that linear to the circular, I know it's not going to be one day you're just going to wake up and it's going to be there. But the transition's begun and we just really have to worry about that because it's expected. You can't keep saying that we're green, we're sustainable, we care about the planet and still be worse than your competitors when it comes to environmental impact. And just as important, you can't be bad to people. You can't say, oh yeah, we're doing a great job. By the way, we do have some sweatshops in Asia and our fulfillment centers are not good places to work. No one will like that. So No, totally. Especially as we think about Gen Z. 
I know we like to riff on millennials a lot, but Gen Z is now in the workplace. So the oldest Gen Zs are now working professionals. How old is the oldest Gen Z? 23, four-ish. So this is going to be the first generation to be larger than boomers. So their spending power is going to be there. And the, the element that's different about this generation is they are fiercely loyal to their own values. This is going to drive their buying behavior and already does. This is going to drive their attrition at work. They have no qualms over leaving a company if it's violating their principles. So if something comes out about the company, they'll leave tomorrow. And so I think it's important for us to see that perhaps in the past, there was a a cleaner delineation between work self and home self. And that delineation doesn't exist for this newer generation and many, in many cases, younger millennials and many people who are older than millennials too. That sometimes we bring our full selves to work and we bring our expectations there as well. So it's good for business. It's also good to retain your talent, which is going to become quite a challenge as we start to see this younger generation move through the workforce. And I think it'll be a challenge for us. I think also, again, getting back to just the relative wealth of not only the United States, but much of the world, we do have options to say, you know what, I got left some money or my mom and dad will take care of me. I'm going to go start a business. You have a lot of options that you didn't have in the past. I am one of the younger baby boomers. And I always felt like when I was working, first off, people (laughs) made fun of us. We just didn't have as much social media, how lazy we were and how (laughs) stupid we were. (laughs) But I remember being in jobs that I thought, this is just so mindless. I hated some of the work I did in engineering. I remember thinking, this is awful. And I would have never thought to quit. Never, ever thought to quit. I would quit if I had a new job. That would be it. The idea of missing a paycheck, oh, no way. But I don't, generations later, they don't feel that way. But I should also say, you mentioned the younger people. I have a daughter who's 27. She got a degree in sustainable business. And I have two daughters and all the stuff they buy. And I shouldn't say, oh, I don't want to put that bar so high, but they are very much buying from sustainable businesses. If you think of like Allbirds, Patagonia, all these businesses are moving to their B Corps. And those companies value what we're talking about here. If they're not circular, they're making that transition to it. And they're paying extra for this stuff, always. And it's some of the stuff's not available on Amazon, usually not. I can tell you that from a gift-giving perspective. (laughs) So, But companies like Everlane, they are spending a lot of money to become more sustainable, and people are willing to pay a little extra. We had Crystal Creek Logistics on the podcast, their B Corp, and they told me it fits their values. They said, but it also fits a lot of people's values. So they get customers who say, this is excellent. I love the idea of working with a 3PL that is sustainable. Right. It'll be an interesting shift for us to see in terms of what's happening in the front end and what's happening as an enabler, right? So how does the supply chain help to do those. And it's it's not always more expensive, right? So for example, Patagonia recently started putting their used clothing on the same rack next to their new clothing. And this is a circular business model. And the operations of this, if we think about building a new sweatshirt, you have to start from scratch, something from the planet, refine it, refine it, dye it, horribly dirtying for the environment, the dyeing process, just go look that up on the internet, all the way through to the retail store. And that time and that cost has to be tried to be minimized by the supply chain. Now, imagine instead you get the same jacket brought back to you with a busted zipper. Cool. You replace the zipper. Everyone's going to panic because, oh, the labor is going to be so expensive. Maybe, but you paid almost nothing for the materials. You bought a new zipper and you didn't have to ship it very far because repairs are done quite close to the store. 
and then you get to charge, get this, 70% of the price for it. So you actually come out quite far ahead. And this is the kernel of how the circular economy works in terms of let's charge more money for the materials we have, not at one shot, but over the course of their life. How many times can we sell it to how many people? How many users can we have for the same item? And this is what will fuel an additional four and a half trillion dollars into the global economy. Very nice. Very nice. And so you mentioned making the supply chains shorter. What do you mean by that? So the first principle of the circular economy is to design waste out. So it's silly for us to try to reduce something that really shouldn't even be there to begin with. And again, if you've been in process improvement, that's how you've been trained to look at a process. Do we even need this step to begin with? The challenge we have today, I'll give you one example. You know those little pear cups you put in kids' lunches, like the plastic, and they've got pear inside? Cool. So often, the ones we're buying, the pears are grown in Argentina. Then it's flown or on a boat, depending on how ripe they are, to Asia for packaging. Then it's shipped to America. So it goes 18,000 miles, somehow still 50 cents. And here's the kicker. We grow pears in America. We grow them where I grew up, a very agricultural community. And we have packaging facilities here. And so if we think about the first principle of using less, together with the fact that global logistics contributes 15% of global emissions, wouldn't it be logical to consider cutting out the thousands and thousands of miles we're shipping items around the world. Right. That's a great example. And I I always think about this is that we're all familiar with McDonald's and no matter where you go in the world, McDonald's are very similar. And I remember I was in China and I remember somebody said, do you want to go to the the most profitable McDonald's on earth? And I go, not really, but it's here in Beijing. It was huge. And I was like, Okay. Yeah. And it was very much just like you would have here. But if you look at modern assembly plants, I'm from automotive. We do all all of our cars are very similar setups in the factories. And more and more that stuff is automated in the factories because we don't want to put people in harm's way. We don't want somebody to do a job that is painful to do after two days, right? So we've moved to automation. And I keep thinking to myself that the standardization that we've seen in McDonald's, we can bring that to automation and assembly also. So the idea that, and I'll use the example of the frying pan. Frying pans used to be made in Wisconsin for the people in the United States. Virtually all of them were made in Wisconsin. Then it moved down to Mississippi and Alabama because it was, they didn't have northern labor costs. They also didn't have uh, unions. So it all moved down there. Then it all moved to China, of course. That was all labor arbitrage. We're kind of getting past that labor arbitrage, especially when you start talking about automation. Automation Automation doesn't care where it lives. We sometimes have companies in China using automation to create the product. That automation might have been made here and then sold to China or made in Asia or wherever, but it could have been built here. I think another aspect of that is sometimes we make it very difficult to open up a facility here. We say, it's not in my backyard. We don't want the pollution. And somebody says, the hell with it. Move it to Asia. Well, the world did not become a better place. So we're going to have to open up our eyes here to a How do we get like the frying pan? Frying pans should be made here (laughs) by the autumn. And what used to be a hundred people in a factory is now seven or eight engineers and frying pans should be made here. But we're going to have to somehow open up our eyes to how do we not pollute? People here in the United States don't notice that there's pollution going on 
for their frying pan manufacturing in China. It's not our problem. But somewhere along the line, we're going to get past labor arbitrage and past the idea that I can export my pollution elsewhere. Yeah, and I think as we make this transition, there's I'm stepping be a off couple. my soapbox. <laughs> Let's stay on a soapbox. I'm going to give you a solution. There's these assumptions we have, like factories are huge and dirty and noisy. And that's not going to happen anymore. So everything we've done since the second industrial revolution in the 1920s, where lighting was really taking off through the 70s, where automation and digitization really started. And now here we are, of course, in the fourth industrial revolution. And what we're seeing with the shift towards material scarcity and disruptions that we're starting to do, and this is one of the instigators for circularity, like, yep, sustainability is good. But what's kind of freaking us out is that we need materials to fuel our economy And if we don't have a secure source of materials, we're kind of screwed. So let's imagine we're, let's say, 10 years into the future, and we have found a way to capture materials and use them again. And we've stopped using these huge, mega centralized factories. And instead, we'll use something like Unilever just launched called a nano factory. They've put an entire food processing line fully automated in a 40-foot container And they can plop it down next to a market, make as much as they need and move it to another market. So imagine your frying pan example, and we could actually produce in transit. So let's say we've identified a market needs 100 pans. Great. We get enough raw materials and in transit stops, offloads the 100, give them more raw materials and they go off again. So I think we'll have a value added in transit, non-value added in transit. But anyway, I, I think it's, we need to break these assumptions of what we think a factory looks like. And instead, you know, the manufacturing staff of the future, like you've alluded to, is going to be the engineers who keep all of these automation repaired and running and optimal. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned food earlier. I think 15, 20% of our food in the U.S. comes from outside the U.S., which... I'm shocked it's even that low. (laughs) Right. Well, I did a lot of stuff on food safety modernization in the past, a lot of training on that. And yeah, people always say 20%. Some people think that's too high. Some would think it's too low. But one of the things is food safety has become an issue. And also, you mentioned the idea that we grow it here and then it's somehow it's a nickel cheaper. So it ends up get, getting pushed to South America or wherever. And I understand that we probably don't grow bananas very many places here, but more and more, we're going to see some factories. Like I, I know um, you can do indoor farming, you know, where Local they basically have really taken off. Yep. Right. Yep. And I'm here in Detroit where we used to have like 2.1 million people in Detroit. And I think there's like 650,000. There are tens of open space to build basically farms that are indoors, right? And what's interesting about that is we also have a problem getting uh, good nutrition to the inner cities. And I, I look and say, all this stuff kind of is a win-win-win kind of thing. And that's what we, we need to kind of put our hats on, a new perspective, put our hats on and say, we're going to be more creative about how we look at this. We've traditionally looked at things and said, how can we make a penny more profit. And I think if you can get to the place where you say, yeah, we still got to make that profit no matter what, <laughs> not no matter what, but we still got to make a profit. Otherwise, someone else also step in who's not as ethical as we are. And But we still have to do better for our environment and better for the communities that we serve. And I think what we'll find is that's the best marketing you could ever spend on. You know, I think it's sometimes a little unseemly when people are like, look at us, look at us, look how great we are. We do all these wonderful things. But 
it's better marketing than just, I hired a really funny guy here to speak. Yeah. I think we're starting to run out of ways to be cheaper. And I don't call... No more. The labor arbitrage doesn't work as well as it once did. Not with automation. You're absolutely right. And the goal of this concept of circularity, and maybe we're not going to call it this, but whatever it's going to be called, is a strategy. It's not a goal. We're not going to do this because it seems cool. It's a strategy to be cheaper and to feed people better and to employ people for less money. And it, the math works out, I promise you, it is cheaper to employ people in a circular operation, which is cool because we need more jobs. So when we think about this idea, I just saw yesterday, I don't recall the city, they're starting to engineer affordable housing and vertical farming in the same building. And frankly, I don't know why I can't grow my own vegetables in my kitchen. I'm kind of upset that I don't have it already built in. You know, Why do we need to drive to a grocery store to buy something like lettuce? And so I think there's going to be a big shift back to decentralized lands, hydroponics, inside of homes. There's a World War II bunker in London that's used to grow vertical farming now with the UV lights. And so uh, they can grow 24 hours a day. It's completely sealed. So there's no bugs. So there's no herbicides needed or, or pesticides needed rather. So quite an interesting innovation. And it's not well, it also is, it's happening it also, now. <laughs> it doesn't also have, so if traditionally, like if I look at a city like Detroit, we would get that the vegetables would be grown somewhere else, right? vegetables and fruits grown somewhere else and then shipped there. If you can say, hey, look, this is fresh because we grew it down the street. And we do have some of these um, produce deserts in the cities. I mean, where people don't get there. One of my kids lived in Detroit for a little while and she said, you can't even shop for vegetables in a lot of areas down there. And it's crazy. Now it's a lot better in the last few years. But we also, by the way, cities like Detroit are enormous. That's like you put New York and Boston inside of Detroit. And what's crazy is they got all this land and you would go, you would never farm there. Well, now you would. It's yeah, a lot of empty space there. Up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it falls into this uh, theme of really challenging the way we think about these large industrialized systems that we've made. That Huge factories are going to become small factories. Huge farms will become small farms. Right. And I think also we've always had this idea of, as you said, drive the cost out. And that, look, that served us very well. And this is just the next, the next iteration. For a long time, I've been from automotive and all we talked about was lean, 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 take it out, take it out, take it out. Whatever nickels and dimes and pennies, quarter penny you could take out, you took out. And it got to be a pain in the ass. I mean, that's all you ever do is go to cost. I did a lot of facilitations and workshops and some people, when I'd say, hey, we could go with eight. They're like, shut up. That's the eight fasteners. We've done the research 30 times. There's no way to get less than eight fasteners. Like, all right, all right, guys, calm down. Like, because we'd been down that road so much, but now we're kind of getting to the next place, which is how do we start imagining a better way for the planet and also, again, there's this sort of... Yeah. And if, since you know lean, Joel, I'll give you my one-liner here. If lean is about finding and eliminating waste, then circularity is about finding and monetizing waste. And I was sharing I with you... I love it. I um, love uh, it. The industrial waste industry in America is $57 billion a year already. This is not new. We do this already. Think scrap metal. This is not a new space for us. What we're saying is, what if this was a $570 billion industry at a zero? This is the level that we're going to be shifting in. Think more repair. 
think more of our MRO, the end of the supply chains that's seen as like, oh, that's too bad. The returns folks, the repair people, they are going to be the superheroes tomorrow. And this is going to be the industry that grows. Right. And, you know, it's also interesting with, we do so much trade with China and Asia. And right now we've seen, you know, we got the container shortage. I mean, we've got a lot of issues with that trade. But I've also, I'd spent a lot of time working back and forth to China and waiting that month. And I remember my supply guy used to say to me, do you ever hear the term slow boat to China? I was like, yeah, he goes, that's what your stuff is moving on. <laughs> like, Literally, it's on the slowest <laughs> boat. Yeah. But so some of our products are a month away. That is a real challenge. I mean, in some of it, you go, why is it even over there? If we can move the automation from China to Idaho, sorry, Idaho, <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, Idaho, we'll give Idaho a tip of hat, the tip of the hat. Idaho can have more jobs. <laughs> yeah, but again, also we have to when we move it back here. There's an expectation that we do it in a way that Idaho is not going to mind. They're going to say these are great jobs, and we appreciate the work. Not hey, you just moved a smelly factory near us. And I think that's what's going to start happening. So, and again, I've said this many times on my podcast. And I'm going to say it many more times. Eventually, one of the big brands that you work for is going to say hey, you know what? Sustainability is very important to us. And what measures are you measuring? What metrics, what KPIs do you have? If it, whether it's empty miles or whatever you should measure, it's too late. <laughs> it's too late when they ask. You have to start right now. And it could be one simple step. I always say one new metric, one new KPI. And empty miles is something we've always concerned ourselves with in this business. Whatever it might be, start measuring because you're going to need to put something on that PowerPoint presentation that says our sustainability efforts. And by the way, C.H. Robinson today came out. I saw the announcement. Perhaps it's already been out there. I think Arrive Logistics is doing stuff with sustainability. There's lots of companies. I mentioned Crystal Creek. Your competition, including the big dogs, are already there. So when they ask, you had better be ready. Yeah, I'll give you an answer here. This is one great item for your PowerPoint slide. Try to go figure out everything that's coming in to your operations. And I mean materials, I mean heat, I mean your, who, where does your power come from? Where do the server farms sit that run your automation software and your analytics? Go find all the inputs, just find them, and then find where they come from. Is it from a primary or secondary source, so virgin materials coming from the planet? Is it from a dirty or clean source like your power? And just find out. And it's going to be a lot harder than it seems because once you get to tier two, three, five, seven of your supply chain, it's really tough to find out. If you can already do that, then try to measure what's going out and going out as a finished good, going out as waste, going out as steam, and there's going to be a gap. You're not going to quite know all the different areas. Just start there because you'll be among the best in the world if you can figure that out. It's really, really tough to do. But that's going to be the next game of how green are our operations. And today, we don't even have the measurement systems in place to be able to do that. Right. And one of the things that comes up a lot on this podcast is we're always trying to get rid of empty miles. Nobody wants a truck to run half empty. That is just the epitome of waste. As we get more data, we're able to have less miles driven with a half a truck. So sometimes data is the key to this. And so, and again, I think also, this has come up I, when we talked to the supply chain queen, Sherry Heinish. She's, I think it was from that conversation. Some of the stuff that we're already doing is towards this effort. And we just don't call it that. And I think in some ways we should start calling it that. So when you say, look, empty miles is not just something we, we chase because of money. 
We're chasing it because we're trying to have less of an impact on the environment. Right. Yeah. And of course, I'm going to say, can we just stop driving it? That's the first question to ask yourself. Why are we driving it to begin with? Are we doing silly things like driving frying pans from the port of Los Angeles over to Michigan? Or can we substitute it with something else? Can we do this in a different way? Can we reduce the number of miles it's being driven? Because I'd rather half a truck goes 50 miles then a full truck goes 2,000 miles. Right. And I think we also have to start looking at all this stuff. I know I can hear people going, I don't know how this could happen there. Where's the money going to come from? And I always think this is one of those creativity over capital things. And I think if you put your mind to it, get the team together, and we are so good at Lean and some of these other tools, Six Sigma, we are very good at finding ways to pay for stuff. And if you can say, hey, look, this is the savings or this is maybe it's just hey we didn't save any money but this is something to to um, do because it's going to be good for the environment and people are going to ask and it'll reduce your risk listen everybody we have a very very short window of time right now where the for the first time we can actually make risk-based decisions because covid just threw us all into global disruption i think we only have another five or six months that we can play this card so please take this chance to say look Maybe it doesn't save us any money, but it's going to reduce our risk by half. And this is how we're going to be more resilient and we can stand up and continue to serve our consumers. So please start pushing that because we don't have very much longer that we can use. This. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. And that's another that's another great point. Like when COVID hit, we started realizing that a lot of the personal protection equipment. Oh, it's made in China. Not just made in China, made in Wuhan, China. <laughs> like So and you kind of look and go, why is that not made here? It's not rocket science. We know how to make it. At some point it was made here and then it got moved over there to save some money. And we have not gone back to say, is there actually a savings when I add a month on the ocean? And um, And to start thinking total landed cost, you know, supply chains are still so siloed that we're going to optimize for logistics and optimize for manufacturing. But what if you put it together end to end to end to end and start thinking again? And I think we'll be surprised as we start taking a look at the numbers and then compare it to your service levels, and then compare it to your carbon emissions. And we're starting to have more factors on our scorecards, and I think we'll be surprised. So don't misunderstand. I'm not saying an America first type here. I'm saying shorter supply chains. So if you live in a border town, so like where I'm from, Washington, we're close to British Columbia, it may make more more sense for us to trade with each other than for Washington to trade with Texas because it's so much further away. So this is about a, a shorter supply chain game here and how we can really optimize that. Oh, yeah. Like uh, well, I'm from the Detroit area. And again, I worked in automotive 100 years ago, 50 years ago. The automotive suppliers were in the Midwest. They're most of Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, all this surrounding area. Then we realized, oh, you know what? The Southerners are a little cheaper. Let's move down there. They don't have unions down there. We move further away. And then there's obviously the transplants. But you start to look and go, yeah, guys, does this even make sense that we're buying stuff from from China? When sometimes the, the risk of that one month, when you make a product change, you go, oh, well, the stuff on the ocean is obsolete and I'm shipping it here anyway. Yep. Yep. That risk. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, this was great stuff. I really appreciate it. So first summarize this and let's tell you can, then you can tell us about circular stuff. Cool. In summary, if you work in supply chain, please go get curious about your processes and what's coming into your operations. If you don't work in supply chain, 
still go be curious about what's coming into your processes. You as a human certainly could do some work, but the majority of the waste produced is actually produced upstream from municipalities. So we get a lot of pressure on ourselves to do more in our homes, but really turn around and look at what's coming in. So go be curious about this space. And as we were talking about, Joe, even teenage girls can find where their cosmetics are being manufactured these days. So there's a lot more information on the internet about what to go do. So that's really the summary point here and the idea that we can uh, infuse more money into our economy if we change the relationship we have with materials. Excellent. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about your organization. The What do you call it? Yeah, circular circular Supply Chain Network. All right. Helpful, but listen, if you come to me with a better name, we are all about shortening up that sucker. <laughs> so the idea is a bunch of supply chain professionals came to me and said, look, this is a really cool topic, but we, there's no space for us to talk to each other. Um, there's some forums that are pay to play, so you can go if you spend a bunch of money. So we are a registered nonprofit, free to join, and it's a space for us to have three activities together. One, to share resources that we find around the community to have a space to learn. Two, to have a space to connect with each other. We run in different time zones. So we've got folks joining from around the world. I've got volunteers on every continent except Antarctica, but we're still working on that one. And we have ways that we take action together. So we're right now creating a toolkit to explain what is a circular supply chain. Notably, we're writing a kid's book, not for kids, but to force simplicity in the way that we describe these concepts. So really excited about the work happening across our member base today. You can find us at circularsupplychain.network. We're active on LinkedIn. And you can certainly connect with me and I can point you to the right folks as well. Excellent. Deborah. what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile on in the show notes. And I'll also put a link to your website for your company. And any other links you give me about circular <laughs> supply chain. Because again, I do think this is a brand new area, but it's coming. Better yet, it's here. <laughs> so, some people are doing it. And again, guys, this is one of those things that you have to get on board with because if you're in logistics or transportation, you're going to be asked. We tend to focus all of our energies on reducing costs and covering loads. And at some point, somebody's going to say, what about your environmental impact? What are you doing for sustainability? And if you can't point to it, you might lose the business. And again, the guy, the top guys in this space, Robinson just came out with, I don't, perhaps it's new, perhaps I just never heard of it, but the leaders in the space are doing it. So they see some value in it. So Deborah, thank you so much. This was really a good education. I really enjoyed talking to you about this. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Always, always appreciate sharing the good news of a uh, circularity and what it can do. Excellent, excellent. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 